I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Yes, so, uh, right, who we got today then? Gary, we've got George, yes? Yes, the boy. Now, are you going to bring up, uh, there's a lovely story of when you were, was it the true album, when you were finishing at Compass Point? That uh, boy George was literally waiting ah. at the door to come in. No, it's it's more low rent than that. Actually, it was Red Bus Studios. Where where was your book? You changed it. You made it <laughs> Compass Point. Did, no, I don't think I did. I think you must yeah, have. You did. Uh, where, 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 was, where was Red Bus Studios? Where was that? Uh, that was by Church Street Market in That's right. uh, off, off Edgware Road, Listen yeah. Grove Way. Yeah. yeah, right. So um, we weren't sunbathing anywhere. So we were. We yeah, we were mixing gold. And we've been mixing it all night. And, you know, and it got to that stage where we were mixing it for so long, you know, people suddenly started saying, I can't hear the bass drum anymore, you know, yeah. as they do. And uh, and outside the door was, was Steve Levine and Boy George waiting to come in to finish off one of their mixes. And that's the kind of life we led in the 80s, you know, when hits were being made. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, <laughs> you know, it was just a, it was just a, a, a factory... You know, it was no, a bit more what he said, wasn't it? Wasn't he? Would you get a move on so some real talent can come in? <laughs> <laughs> Luckily, he doesn't remember saying that probably by now. Um, the no, first time, I... although I will bring it up. No, I won't know. <laughs> yeah, and the first time I, I, well, I remember going to George's squat at Warren Street, and uh, we all went in, spanned our ballet, uh, went in for this photo session. It was our first photo shoot uh, with Graham Smith taking the pictures, who lived there as well at Warren Street squat. And uh, and as and as we were coming through the door, some George leant over the banister and said, I can sing better than your fucking singer any day. <laughs> and in the end, he was probably right. Who knows? Uh, welcome to the Rock on Tours. OK, guys, I'm ready. Well, it's a big tune for sure. I actually wrote that originally for Tina Turner. Of course, I had gone and found Joni Mitchell down in Florida and brought her back. You know, what people forget about Bowie is that he was such a kind man. Remember me? I'm in a band now. <laughs> it's called Roxy Music. You know this thing about the 10,000 hours of experience? Oh, yeah, that's it. Get good at something. When we recorded Arnold Lane, we'd done about 50 hours. The Rock Hunters podcast with Gary Kemp and Guy Pratt. So where are you, George? I am in Camden. Gateway to the north. Yes, I'm in Cam- I'm, I'm actually, at the moment, I'm in a, well, because I've been out of my house for the last two years, so I'm in a rented place at Mornington Crescent, top of Camden, and waiting to go back to my house, hopefully, maybe in March, if I'm lucky. Well, you're doing it up? Oh, my God. Well, the thing is, I started doing it up before, <laughs> before all this happened, and then I had probably planning permission, and then I had to go back and re sort of apply and then the pandemic hit so yeah i've been out of there for about two years it's been insane so memories of the camden palace right in front of runs of you i mean you're just around I'm the not, corner are you i'm not far from there yeah um yeah that's close but um i mean i'm, I'm from i've lived in Hampstead 30 years so i'm from this sort of neck of the woods you know oh, i've been living here for a long time didn't you yeah at one point i think it was back in the 80s you used to live next door to nick mason from pink floyd didn't you 
he lives across oh. the road. He lives. He's, he, I don't know if he's still there, but he lives across the road, um, in, in, in the corner. So yeah, he's just across from me. I tried to get him to invite me for a cup of tea, but he didn't seem keen on the idea. <laughs> well, I remember years ago because I've worked with Nick for over thirty years, and I remember, and he told me that he used to have uh, fans of yours camp outside his house. Yeah, and he'd come out in the morning, and they'd say to him, "What's it like living next door to a pop star?" <laughs> <laughs> George, George, looking at your Wikipedia. It, it, honestly, it's like it's like trying to catch up on on Coronation Street's last sixty years in one go. I mean, there's, there's so much that's gone on in your life. I tend not to read my Wikipedia. I did try to change it once because I thought some of the facts were incorrect and unhelpful. But um, it, when I went back the next day, it just gone back to where it was. So I thought I'd just give up on it, you know. But we'll, we'll ignore it. We'll talk about when we first met, though. I mean, you yeah, know, I'm basically going to let, let you two bitch it out for the next day. Nah. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> I mean, I used to be because we go back to like Steve. Steve Strange, in a way, was out was 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 our introduction because we ended up in the same room together at Billy's down in Soho, and then later on at the Blitz, and all all very famous now, of course. But at the time, we were just a bunch of kids. I remember being quite terrified of you then, George. I, don't know I actually think. Let me tell you, when I first met you guys, was actually in the squat in um, in Kim Bowen's. I think it might have been Kim Bowen's bedroom. Warren Street. You were doing a shoot there. No, yeah, you were doing a shoot there. Something was going on and you guys were there. That's right. And it was sort of just, it was, you know, you remember that period, everything sort of happened quite quickly. There was a lot going on, you know. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I remember, I remember, I certainly remember Martin. I think you were there as well. Uh, we were, yeah. Yeah, and, and you were in the house. And I remember sort of, you know, because it was around the time I was sort of, you know, contemplating, you know, future stardom for myself as well. So I remember seeing you lot all dressed up, thinking, who, is these, "Who are these lot? Who do they think they are?" <laughs> no, but I remember, I remember clearly as we walked in the door, you shat, leant over the banister and shouted, "I can sing better than your fucking singer any day." <laughs> <laughs> um, and I remember us all raising our eyes, going, "Yeah, right," <laughs> you know, not not realizing that you were going to, you know, take over the world at some point with your voice. Mind you, Tony's got a beautiful voice as well, so you know, it's, it was yeah. just one of those things. I'll tell you a, fun, a funnier story. I remember going to see Sade perform outside the beetroot on a lorry. Do you remember that? Yeah. Oh, God. Yeah. When it was Pride. They were called Pride. Pride. Yeah. I remember seeing them at the marquee. And I, I did a similar thing with her. I said, oh, she'll get nowhere. I was so wrong. <laughs> <laughs> but you didn't you didn't come on that New York trip with us when Sade came as a model before she could sing. We went to New York to do to play at the Underground Club. You, you didn't. No, come I didn't come on it, but I remember seeing the footage at that point, I'd never left the UK. I'd never even been to Europe. I'd never left England. So I remember watching, seeing all this footage of you guys in New York. And in fact, it was your manager, Steve, that came up to me uh, in the street in, in somewhere in um, Gooch Street. I saw him in the street and he said, oh, your record's getting played on the radio in America. I had no idea. And it was Steve really? that told me and I was like, oh my God, I couldn't, I couldn't sort of even imagine it. You know, it was like, how do they know about me? You know, it was. <laughs> well, I mean, it was quite extraordinary, wasn't it? When you think that, I mean, we can talk about it in a in, in a bit, but I mean, just that you could break America in such a huge way as a man dressed in the way you were dressed, America of all places that is so straight. I think that it's. Um, I think it's that that sort of um, when you're an import 
people are less offended by you. If you if you're homegrown, it's more of a concern, you know, like always one of us. But when you're a sort of an alien commodity and you're brought in from overseas, people are like, oh yeah, well that's what they're like in England. They're all like that. <laughs> well, except except that what's extraordinary is like there was there was Bowie before you and then there was you George and, and now there's the same bullshit happening about Harry Styles and you, th- is, you know in America oh he's not manly it's extra- it's like it never goes away in America it's it's funny you know but I suppose you know especially now I think the news is I think the news has become a sort of branch of show business now you know it was remember when we were kids it was sort of people in corduroy just telling you the facts yeah, and now yeah, these people yeah. are like they're all stars in their own right you know they've all got beautiful teeth and they've all you know, they've all got brands to promote. And I think news is sort of insatiable now in a, in a way that it, it wasn't really like that even in the 80s, even though, you know, the press was so powerful in the 80s. But now it just seems relentless. You know, they're just looking for things to write about. And, you know, it's, uh, you know, I guess for us, because we've sort of seen it all before. I mean, that's not a reason not to do something. I think in respect to Harry, I think it's great. You know, he's living his best life right now. He's in his moment and i think you should enjoy it i get what guy's saying as well that that um you know what you were doing at that time and 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 bowie to a certain extent before although bowie didn't break america truly until he went straight that wasn't what yeah exactly that was before he was that was he wasn't no when he he was bisexual that didn't really work in america but but you know what you did you know breaking those grounds so much you know getting young kids to 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 feel empowered by the way they truly were which you must have done 40 years ago you know you'd think the world would have moved on a bit more a bit faster than it really has i mean but then again what you did what did change the future didn't it at that time i think i think it was a sort of unconscious thing you know i think that we were you know teenagers you know we were you know when you're young you just think you've got this sort of undeniable right to do whatever you choose and the idea that someone else is going to tell you what to wear is just so ridiculous. <laughs> you know, even though what we were wearing at the time or before we got famous would have got us chased down the street, you know, and beat up by some people. It was, I think it was youthful belligerence. And I don't think, I think it's easier for me now to look back and say, oh God, I didn't really realize what impact, you know, I knew I was, you know, I was attention seeking. I was in a band. I was, you know, traveling the world and, you know, it was all very exciting, but, I wasn't as conscious of the responsibility. I didn't really think about it. You know, I was just, I guess in a way, just full of my own self-importance. <laughs> George, can I, if I can get to a, <laughs> to a, mu- yes. a musical point, the thing is having, because I, I, re- I read your book, your first book, Rick, you know, when it came out and absolutely loved it. Yeah, brilliant. Um, I, but um, where your whole delivery started, as you're showing us now, is just so gorgeous. But um but what I find interesting musically is, is if someone read the story of your upbringing and where you went, and then the world of squats and punk yeah. and the clubs and everything and how you dress, and if someone read that story and then mm. saw pictures of you, you would assume, right, that the music you made would be kind of edgy, like an Ian Curtis or a John Lydon. And yet you have this wonderful, really, really gentle sort of pop melodic sensibility. This is, I've always thought it's quite interesting that, that you know, wh- where that came from. Well, I think bands, you know, um, before I started Culture Club, I just wanted to be like the Banshee. So I was a goth and I'm still a goth. But when you start a band, you know, you have to take on everybody else's kind of ideas and influences. And Culture Club sort of became very different to what I planned it to be. Do you know what I mean? I don't know if that happened with Spando Bally, but certainly. Yeah, I agree with you know, what you're saying. You, 
you have to listen to people and you have to sort of you have to try and be a democracy <laughs> and it does change what you do musically and I suppose in a funny sort of way it was kind of accidentally subversive you know it was like you had this sort of contradiction of the sort of look and then you had the sort of sound of the band but we were big soul fans so we grew up obviously we were Bowie kids but we also grew up listening to Gladys Knight and the Pips and the Stylistics and yeah. all of that kind of American soul and I think when you love music, you know, there's one thing to love music. And then of course, what you love in terms of your identity can be completely different. And I think that is one of the most beautiful contradictions about that period in history was, you know, that we, I mean, you, you guys as well, you know, you looked a certain way, but you made beautiful soul music for quite a similar, you know, concept really. But I think we were a product of what we grew up loving, you know, and, and, and also we were sort of attention seekers and, you know, we love the idea of, you know, sort of people taking our picture and, you know, just causing general, you know, controversy. I mean, that was just, I guess I still like doing no, no, that. I, now, I, really. I completely, I completely <laughs> concur with what you're saying. I mean, it's just, we, we certain types of music uh, in their time were subversive to get for, for bands like ourselves coming out of that whole blitz electronic scene to suddenly go and do blue eyed soul and to do it as, dare I say, as kind of as, as, as perfect, if you like, to the, as possible, was 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 shocking in those days. You know, it would alienate the NME for a start. And that used to turn us on, didn't it, to do something like that. But also because we wanted to be successful in the charts as well. I think we, we, we love the ideas of making hit records. That's what we grew up buying. Exactly. And I think that, you know, in a way, you know, a lot of it was learning on the spot. I mean, I have no musical education. I didn't, you know, go to music classes at school. As soon as I found out they wouldn't let me play, get it on by T-Rex and they wanted me to play green sleeves. I was out of there, you know, I was like, no, this isn't for me. You know? <laughs> so I kind of didn't do any of that stuff. And I think, I think our generation, we were very, um, we just did it. We didn't read the manual. We just went out there and did what we did. And we sort of just believed that we could do it. And we sort of threw a lot of things into the pot that maybe didn't necessarily go with each other. You know, we were just talking about my look and, you know, the whole reggae thing that we embraced. I used to get chased down the street, you know, by like rasters because they were like so outraged that I was, you know, wearing makeup and I had dreadlocks and, a, you know, and a big raster hat on and I used to get sort of so much abuse, but it was kind of invigorating in a way, you know, to sort of get that kind of reaction, you know, it felt, Felt like you were doing something right you know people rejected when you were in america though did you did you ever get any threats were people genuinely hateful towards you at times people were generally gorgeous but there were a few times when you know in the beginning down south wasn't a place that we we didn't get many gigs we didn't get many gigs down south and in fact there was one night on um halloween when i had to go on stage wearing a bulletproof vest and i wasn't happy about that because it made me look really fat, so I was really miserable about doing that. <laughs> like a big, you know, it's it's big... better than looking dead, love. So, that, you know, there were a few times I used to get a lot of those um, sort of religious groups coming to the gigs with, you know, signs saying, you know, if sex is a sin, what is boy George and all of that stuff. And, and then they moved on to Marilyn Manson. But for years, we used to get those people. And I used to sort of open the top of the limousine and kind of get out and wave at them and throw them a kiss. <laughs> Yeah, I mean the thing is, but uh, um, George, you, you were quite straight-looking compared to some people at the Blitz Club. I mean Marilyn, for example, was full 
completely full Marilyn Monroe, wasn't he? <laughs> well, I think he was looking for, you know, he was kind of trying to make men fall in love with him. You know, that was that was Marilyn's kind of, <laughs> yeah. what's the word I'm looking for? That was Marilyn's agenda. You know, he was uh, he was like, oh, I just want everyone to fancy me and then I can reject them all. So that was his his plot. You know, it's like he just wanted to attract people and then the minute they were interested, no, I'm sorry, I'm not interested. <laughs> I, I'm always kind of saddened by the fact that Steve Strange, who really was the, you know, the, the gatekeeper, if you like, and the one who came up with this, I don't, did he come up with any concept? It was just a Bowie night, wasn't it, really, in Tuesday nights on at the Billies, at Billies and Blitz. And then it just ended up becoming something greater, something that determined the whole look of the next decade as far as youth culture and pop culture is concerned. And I always feel quite sad that Steve Strange never made the same sort of brilliant journey that some of us made yeah I think Steve you know I got very close to Steve sort of in the later years you know um not so much back in the day because we were in fierce competition with each other but you know as we got older I got very close to Steve and I was very very fond of him you know and you know I, I actually did a great photo shoot with him a few years back and I just really got to like him as a person you know once we got through all the sort of petty you know sort of <laughs> squabbles um i actually really really did like steve and, and uh, i was very sad when he passed away and you know i think that he was very important and i think that song fade to gray even though at the time i would have never have said this i remember going to a new romantic club in woolwich where i came from and they were playing fade to gray and i was devastated <laughs> i was like even in woolwich my god i can't escape this man but now i can look back and say that record when you listen to fade to gray it's, oh, it's so, aged really well it's aged really such well. a good record yeah, it's just yeah. so good you know and i couldn't have said it at the time so it's nice to be able to say it now really and then sadly you and i helped to carry his coffin five years ago which was just shocking yeah i mean but you know at the same time it was a really nice, I was glad that I could do that. And I was glad that I could be part of that moment, mm. even though it was an awful moment. You know, it was it was great to, there was a nice kind of camaraderie about that, you know, which, um, which for me finished the circle a little bit, you know. Yeah, yeah. I, Guy, for, for me and uh, George, I know it's good, and we're, we'll, we'll talk to George about it, but I know that we, uh, our moment, our sort of moment of revelation, Damascian moment was 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 Bowie doing Ziggy Stardust on yeah, top of the pops. Yeah, I mean, yeah. you're a couple of years. You're, you're, I think you're, I dare oh. say you're a couple of years younger than me. Did, what, so, I remember the between, same in between you? you and George. Yeah, no, it was the same. It was absolutely the same. I mean, although I got into sort of older people's mood. Yeah, but yes, because Bowie was my older sister's thing. And uh, no, but no, Starman was that. That was that absolute defining moment, wasn't it? I had the same thing with my brother Richard was the Bowie fan to start with. And then I was well, around about Man of Sold the World. Richard was my brother. Richard was really into Bowie. And then as Bowie got more flamboyant, you know, he was passed on to me. And uh, I remember hearing those records through my brother's bedroom door, pounding, you know, out the speakers and just being so transfixed with, um, you know, that Man of Sold the World album and just wanting to know more about who Bowie was. And I think, you know, what he did was so at that time for me, and you know, as a kid, I was living in Southeast London and I felt very alienated in my surroundings. And when he sort of landed, it was just like, oh my God, you know, there's, there is hope. <laughs> well, there's a lovely thing. I remember in your book, for some reason, George, there's this one moment of, I can't remember, it's, it's when you're very young and you're, you're sort of, you've left home and you're sitting in a club and feeling all alone. And, and for some reason, you just said, I just wish they'd play some Sex Pistols or David Bowie. And it's like, that's what would make everything all right. 
<laughs> I think that's still really the same now. You know, I mean, I you know, I've just been, um, I've, I've just, I'm making a record at the moment with Tony Visconti, so it's quite nice to oh, wow. be talking talking about that. And you know, that was a total accident. I just uh, a few months ago, I just suddenly thought, why have I never worked with him? You know, he's one of my favorite producers, and you know, obviously, he's produced some of my favorite records. And I just ended up getting in touch with him, and and um, you know, and I'm I'm hoping to make hopefully to make my next album with Tony. So that's amazing. So again, it's that mad connection to to Bowie and those records. I mean, I think I think when I was a teenager, that music, I mean, still is hugely important to me, you know, but then it was really everything. It was just all I thought about 24 seven was was records and and dressing up, of course. <laughs> But Bowie had given us all license. You know, I, I remember going, feeling so different going to the school playground on the Friday after that Top of the Pops, uh, after seeing, seeing Starman and everybody talking about it. Suddenly, suddenly Mark Boland was yesterday's man, it felt like. And, Not to uh, me. <laughs> well, but, I mean, listen, I mean, without a doubt, you know, watching Mark do on Top of the Pops in Telegram Sam was another great, great moment, you know, or the glitter on his cheek that, that, that we first saw, you know, that was incredible. And Electric Warrior as well. I mean, it's still, you know, one of the great albums of all time. Oh, I'd go even but further, it... Slider. I mean, I love Slider. I love um, early T-Rex. You know, I've got a, I've got one tattoo of Ziggy on one arm and I've got one of Mark on the other. To me, you know, they were the sort of pivotal people of that period, but I still, I still love T-Rex. I still play it all the time. It still gives me that same giddy feeling when I hear it. And did you meet David? Met David, never met Mark, which was really sad, but I met David like three or four times. I had dinner with David in New York in about 2004, which was insane. And I was still, even though I was famous myself, I still felt like that little 16 year old kid, you know, that was oh. like a massive fan. And he was so- Did you wash his feet? I didn't <laughs> did you offer to wash his feet? I didn't wash his feet, but he was very, very sweet to me. Like just adorable. And I remember we were talking about like, British tea and what was on telly. We talked a little bit about EastEnders randomly and a little bit about sort of Russian art films, which I didn't know very much about, but I just pretended. <laughs> you you must have met David, haven't you, Guy? I've played, I've, yes. I, 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 well, I famously had my picture taken with he because I support the band I was in, Ice House, in the early 80s. We supported him on the Serious Moonlight tour. And I got to... I'm so jealous that you had a photograph with him because I never, ever managed to, I met him a few times I never got a photo and every time I see anyone with Bowie I get so pissed oh, well, there's actually quite a good story on this one yeah I'm the same <laughs> George because this was he came to see us we were doing this festival in Germany and I was in catering and he came all these flashes were going off and I looked up and I said fuck me it's it's yeah and it's David Bowie and he grabbed me and said I think you should be in this and so I got and it's me and it's Tony Thompson his drummer and Carmine Rojas his bass player and they all put their arms around me and I stuck this sort of who, me? Sort of expression, you know, pointing at myself. And, and I've, so I got the picture, and then years later, I actually did his, his, his penultimate live performance was with David Gilmore, with us at the Royal Albert Hall. He did Arnold Lane and um, Comfortably Numb. And we did a sort of team photo in the afternoon. And I, I was writing my book at the time. I said, David, I want to try and recreate this photo you and I had taken. He went, all right. So Brian Rasick, photographer, was there. And I pulled the same pose, and he went, I remember that picture. I went, no, you don't. It went, yeah, Ice House, Germany, 1984. Exactly. Well, he was also, he was also, it was always very, seemed to be like he was very aware of what was going on. Even when I spent that 
couple of hours with him in New York. He was very switched on. He knew what was going on. And it was always his thing. You know, when he came to, to the Blitz in, you remember that time he came to the Blitz, you know, oh, yeah, 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 I was swooped in and, and sort of... Um, How did you feel? Well, I was very, um, very excited, but I was trying to hide it desperately because, you know, it wasn't cool to act like a mad screaming fan. <laughs> so I was trying... <laughs> Who was he with or was he on his own? I can't remember. I think he might have been with Coco, Coco. actually. Coco, right. And, yeah. uh, you know, it was pandemonium. Suddenly all these cool people that were so cool just lost plot <laughs> i remembered saying don't talk to him don't go near him he's yet he's yesterday's man and then being really pissed off that people had decided to be in his video well i was you know i was uh, <laughs> i remember because i i remember sort of being selected as one of the people to parade before him to possibly be in the video for um, ashes to ashes and i never i never made the grade i think in a funny sort of way though because i was about to start my own band i was quite happy that i wasn't in that video because i thought well I felt like I might have sort of slightly denigrated myself, you know, and I, you know, when you're that age, you, you think you're too cool for everyone, don't you? And that's kind of, yeah. in a funny sort of way, that's part of what makes you good, you know, is that you, you've got to sort of have this mad self-belief. Um, but, you know, I'm still a Mad Bowie fan. I've always been a Mad Bowie fan. Was, um, I don't want to credit myself in any way, was, but, but was we sort of watching Spandau Valley play at the Blitz and then you came to the HMS Belfast gig, I know, because I've seen pictures i remember uh, it very I remember well i remember it very was it, well was it, was, was it an inspiration for you to say right well i'm gonna do it now as well or do you think you would have done it anyway no i think that at that point i'll be really honest i literally had no idea what i was gonna do and you know i don't know about you but you know you play guitar so it's different you have a sort of different when you learn an instrument i think it yeah, gives yeah. you a sort of confidence about being a musician but i was sort of um you know very naive and i I just, you know, I, I knew I loved music. I didn't know whether I could ever do it as a job, you know, and certainly seeing you guys around that time and, you know, um, Animal Nightlife and, you know, uh, I remember going to see um, Rip Rig and Panic. I remember going to see, you know, them with uh, Naina, you know, singing in a in a shop on Tottenham Court Road, oh, yeah, you know, yeah, all yeah. these mad things, going to see things like the Gang of Four and all those sorts of bands. And yeah, I think it was, you know, I think that it was the punk thing that was like, you know, if they can do it, I knew people that learned bass in three weeks and went, went and joined a band, you know. Shush, my, shush. My brother learned bass <laughs> overnight. So, so I don't want to denigrate the bass guitar guy, obviously, but you know. No, no, it's 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 the easiest instrument to play, you know, to a- Maybe I should, maybe I should become a bass player. Now. I think that, you know, it was- <laughs> <laughs> But no, the thing is, too, when did you discover? Because you, you clearly have a wonderful ear for a tune. You know, you've got a great sort of McCartney-esque sense of melody. I mean, when did you realise you had that? Well, I think that it's, to start with, obviously, you know, when the band got together, we had John, who had been in punk bands, and he had a little bit of experience about songwriting. And, you know, I, I don't know if you know, but the, the, the original name of, of our band was the Sex Gang Children. I remember... Excellent. Yeah, no, I remember that. I remember hearing <laughs> I you. I remember John saying to me, you know what? He went to California on a holiday and he took a, a sort of early demo tape of Culture Club. And he said, everyone in LA loved the band, but they, nobody thought Sex Gang Children was a particularly commercial name for a band. And so we, you know, we decided to, get, <laughs> decided to get rid of that. And I actually gave it to the band. I actually gave it to Andy Sex Gang. Uh, I said, oh, you can have the name. And, um, you know, we, we, we sort of settled on Culture Club. But um, 
in the early days, I really wanted to, you know, the sort of early songs that we wrote were very, you know, goth inspired. I was a big Bauhaus fan, Susie and the Banshees, you know, and there was that really interesting period between sort of punk and what we did, that sort of late electro sound that was so exciting as well. And actually, I would say that, you know, it's only as I've got older that I've sort of realized that I, you know, that I can write a tune and I love doing it. I think for me, that's my favorite thing of everything I do, the process of writing a song and recording it. And the rest of it, I find very, you know, more and more tedious every day. <laughs> that's shocking you say that because that just, it's something about um, your own self-belief because, oh my God, your songs were incredible. You know, I mean, beautiful melodies and really well sung and then but it takes you years to realize that i would actually i don't mean to you know i think i'm getting better <laughs> i think i'm getting better and i think that you know as you get older and you start to realize why you're doing music you know you're not controlled by chart positions or the pressure of a record company or someone telling you what to do and you start to kind of develop a sort of freedom which i have to say i really enjoy now i don't know whether you you know you get the same pleasure out of writing but yeah. you know I, I mean you know we're artists do, yeah. we're only really concerned with what we're doing now you know and you know when people say to me you know oh it sounds very now I always think well it is now why wouldn't it <laughs> yeah and is is John Themis still your still your partner? no no John has John has given oh. up music and he's become he's got involved in some oh, wow. other world and uh I've sort of yeah I've got new people now but um the great thing about what we do is that there's always really exciting people coming in and out of your world, you know, and, you know, obviously, as I said, just, just now I'm working with Tony Visconti and, you know, doing interesting collaborations. I feel like right now I feel very free musically. I feel like, you know, it's, um, it's something I do because I love, it's not something I do because I'm under any pressure. I'm like, kind of feel like I can not do what I want because obviously I've got a, as I say, I've got a commercial ear. I can't help that. You know, I, I grew up listening to beautifully crafted pop songs and that's kind of what I tried to write. But I'm always experimenting with, with you know, the sounds that I make and who I work with. I love that, you know, that freedom. And what about the DJing, George? Was that a sort of to, a, to get away from the strain of creating? Or was that just some, another thing that you loved to do? It was, a, it was an escape. At the time, it was an escape from... Yeah. you know, sort of other people's ideas of what I was, you know, um, when Acid House exploded in the UK, it was so exciting and just going clubbing was so liberating. And, you know, I was able to go to raves, you know, with thousands of people and nobody bothered me. Oh, do you know what? I've just had a fantastic, a really weird random memory. I was on tour with Pink Floyd and we were away for a year and the whole Acid House thing happened when we were away. And while we were in Australia, we all got into this surfwear company called 100% Mambo. And it became the thing we all, and we came back to England and I, and I went to, I took the band to, I think it was. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. 
Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Shoom or uh, one of them. And suddenly suddenly yeah. all my mates were in dungarees eating watermelon. With, you know, and... Uh, and I, saw, I love that description of accident. <laughs> yeah, and, and in this club, you walked past. I think you were with maybe Fat Tony and a couple of other faces, and you were all wearing head-to-toe mambo. Yeah, right. I remember because that was it was a cool Acid House label. Which, and I remember going to Wembley Stadium the next day and saying to the band in the dressing room, "Guys, you're not going to be. I've just seen Boy George. You're fashion leaders again for the first time in twenty years." <laughs> I know we we, we we I've always been a bit, a bit of a non-stop fashion obsessive, you know. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, Mambo was very cool at that it was moment. Great, wasn't it? It was, that and moment. also. Yeah. Acid House wasn't really about dressing up. It was sort of a reversal of all of that. It was all about dancing and sweating and whatever. And, uh, you know, fashion was, there was some fashion, but it was, it wasn't, um, it wasn't sort of pressurized fashion. It was, it was basically dungarees and melon, which I love. <laughs> exactly. I, re- I remember, I remember thinking how kind of sus you were because, you know, Spandau would become this arena band and we were making rockier and rockier records and 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 then suddenly we were yesterday's men because because the whole acid house dj culture had happened and there you were you know you 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 you'd gone that way too you know and i thought that was really clever but also because it suited you because you're a clubbing boy yeah i think i grew up in nightclubs and and you know even though i don't you know these days i really only go to nightclubs if i'm djing i don't go to sort of hang out but i do love that feeling of um you know, it's, it's very similar to, to singing. You know, you, you've got a crowd in your hands. You drop a great record. And, and in fact, you know, I've done a, you know, I did a version of Gold and that goes down, like, honestly, it goes down so massive in clubs. I did a version with... Why um, don't I not know this? Well, I've, it's, it's not out, actually. I, I did it with this artist called Vangelis, who I put forward, you know, to be your singer that time. <laughs> yeah. And uh, not, not Vangelis oh, from cool. the 70s, <laughs> a, new, a new Vangelis. Oh. And, um, not that Vangelis. <laughs> I'll have to send you it because when I play it out, people go, people go mad. In fact, you guys should do a dance mix of that track, like a house mix, because people, the entire club sings it. It's the most exciting thing you've ever, you know, it's like. It's become a, it's become a weird folk anthem, hasn't it? It's so strange that when you play it, well, it's not strange because it's a great song, but when you play it in a house club, like literally, I've got videos I'll send you, you know, in Australia, everyone singing along, just such a fun thing to, to experience and um you know when i dj i do try to sort of play because i'm so so associated with the 80s i do try and get mixes done of you know sort of 80s tracks and and drop them and they go down so massively in the clubs george i i just want to say as well because you know i think what you represent to a lot of people is someone who can come through some really bad times and and still succeed and feel you know rejuvenated as well and change your life so brilliantly because i mean obviously in some you know some of the 80s wasn't so kind to you as well i mean be you know you were there you were on the band-aid record amazingly and then you didn't make the live aid 
show at all. And I did a, I did a, uh, I did a rock against racism show in Clapham common in about 86, I think. And, and I remember you were there and I remember you weren't in the best of places. You know, what's funny about that particular, I remember that day, weirdly, I do remember it and I shouldn't, but there are photographs of, of that day. And I remember you being there, you were there, Sade was there. I think Sting was there. And there's this really terrible picture. Well, it's not a terrible picture, but it's, uh, you know, I don't look so great in it. And I, I had no idea. I thought I was doing great, you know. <laughs> when you're in that, when you're in that yeah. hole, you know, oh, yeah, it's fine down here, you know. Um, but yeah, I think yeah. that, um, you know, fame is a, it's a difficult one, isn't it? Because, you know, at some, I don't know about you, but at some point you have to almost make a sort of deal with it. You have to kind of accept that you've, put yourself in this, in this spotlight. And, you know, I think one of the greatest things that was ever said to me, uh, a therapist said to me once, you used to take your public responsibility more seriously, and now you don't seem to care. And I knew at the time it wasn't a compliment, but I didn't, it didn't sink in for, for a while. And then I suddenly realized what he meant. And um, I suppose in a way, I've spent the last kind of 20 years kind of trying to, you know, trying to make that a reality. And, um, you know, it's, 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 uh, yeah. you know, I mean, I'm in, a, I'm in a very happy place now and, you know, life's great. And I look back at a lot of that stuff and just think, was that even me? You know, who was that person? You know, I, I don't know if you ever feel that about your past, you know, it's something quite voyeuristic about yeah. looking back at your, your career and just saying, Oh my God, who was I then? How did I even manage to cross the road? How did I even, you know, I mean, when I think about the clarity I have now, at this point, you know, and the sort of self-awareness that I have now, I look back at that person and I think, how did you manage to do, well, obviously at the time we had a lot of people helping us, you know, we had these massive, you know, crews around us, but, you know, it was, uh, I think the 80s for me was um, a time when I didn't really have to think a lot. And, and I think in the, in the last few years, you know, I've, I think I've worked a lot on myself, you know, my personal self a bit and, but, you know, a lot of a lot of people died. I know that a lot of your friends died and our friends died. I mean, Steve Strange yeah. died. I mean, all of the same thing. And I mean, what there must be there must be something in your mind that says this is as far as I can go now. I've got to bounce back up. I cannot go. To yeah, I wish it was that simple. I think that, um, you know, life is, uh, you know, it's, it's always a bit of a battle. You know, I always say we're all sort of clinging to a rock in a sense, you know, um, and I think that when you're in that hole, when you're in that kind of storm, you're not really, there's no consciousness. And I think it's really a question of, you know, sort of working on yourself. <clears throat> you know, I've had a lot of therapy over the years. I still do therapy. I think it's hugely beneficial because, you know, sometimes I do think to myself, why am I sitting here talking about my past? And then I think what you learn is that you, you learn what your triggers are and what makes you react in a certain way, what makes you become destructive. And if you can work on that stuff, you can make a big difference to, you know, to your life. And uh, I think as I've got older, I've tried to sort of embrace joy a bit more. You know, I sort of, I think about those things. I think, well, you know, I've realized that happiness sort of comes in the mundane things. It's not the big, explosions that make you truly happy it's it's the kind of really mundane stuff that makes the difference i think one thing i i'd say because i've i've never i've always sort of popped in and out of other people's scenes you know i've always been a sideman so i've never experienced real fame like that but the one thing i observe from all the people i've worked and the, the, the sort of thing that both of you have experienced and probably you more george as a, as a front man is that when you're in the middle of that big 
fame storm. You're essentially being treated like a child, right? And so you're, you're, there's every reason for all your responses to everything to be incredibly childish. I was going to rep- I was going to reply to you. You're being treated like a child, and you know what? Often you're you're acting you like go. a child yeah, as yeah. well. And I think it's I always talk about those sort of um, you know. I think what happens is that you you get famous very. It sort of seems like it just happens overnight, and then you're sort of confronted with all this incredible pressure and excitement as well. It's it's this sort of duality, and I think that what happens is you start to lose control of your your life and kicking off and saying no to things becomes this weird way of feeling that you have some control over what's going on. And I think, you know, as I've got older, I've just accepted that I chose to be this character, Boy George, you know, I mean, it's, I don't think of my stage persona as being a separate thing from who I am as a person. But I also realise that when I'm dressed up and I've got my hat on, people treat me differently. So, you know, it, it comes with a sort of responsibility. Fame is a responsibility and you know it it's sometimes inflicted on people that aren't prepared to or aren't ready to deal with it and i think that was true in my case i think with the where the tabloids were concerned with you and it must have frustrated you to a certain extent that your fame was was not as as much about the music but as about you you and your notoriety and uh and 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 you became you at one moment you're the national treasure and we love you and the next minute the tabloids are hounding you I mean, that was quite a fearful moment. I mean, it was the Lady Die thing, wasn't it, that was going on in your life? It's funny because when you see, um, you know, the press now, you know, wouldn't get away with any of the things that they got away with back in the 80s, the things that they used to say about you. You know, the homophobia was just blatant. It wasn't even subtle. Yeah. I mean, I remember headlines, puffed with muscles, you know, is it a bird, is it a plane? No, it's, you know, a lot of stuff that would make people wow. weep now, you know, be like, oh, you've upset me. <laughs> and I think that, you know, in a way it toughens you up a little bit, you know, and, um, but, you know, luckily for me, I don't really have a sort of anti-press gene. You know, I see it for what it is. I'm not sort of one of these people that won't talk to the media because I see it as such an essential part of what I do. So, you know, I sort of, I don't take it personally anymore, which I used to really take it personally back, you know, in the eighties and stuff, I used to get very upset. Nowadays, obviously, you've got Twitter and Instagram, and I do like a bit of banter with people, you know. Um, I, I put a tweet up. You're great on Twitter, by the way. T- I, love I put you a on tweet Twitter. up this morning about my new track that's out this week, and I said, oh, how sexy is my new track? And somebody wrote, sexless and chaotic. And, you know, that sort of stuff always makes me laugh because I always think these people have got no idea how I could take a bitch down, you know. I just think... You know, when people, when people treat me, I'm like, if you think that's gonna, if you think that's gonna upset me, you and I lived through Julie Birchall. We lived through the seventies. Yeah. You know, we lived through getting caned at school, all that sort of stuff. So, I think that we do have a yeah, sort yeah, of yeah. slightly tougher skin in a way. Actually, just yeah, you reminded me of something else, George, which is that because um, around that time, uh, Andy Rourke from the Smiths got busted for smack and so he wasn't going to be able to do an American tour and they were rehearsing down in Sussex and I was drafted in to play bass so yeah I was in the Smiths for a week and um but and, uh, what was that like it was <laughs> well it was it was fun they were a great mad party band and obviously Morrissey went to bed straight after dad's army every every night um but <laughs> but the, no but it was the same it was tabloids all camped out in the bushes and everything but you sent a message of support I remember to the band which was a 
Just yeah, well, I was a massive Smiths, massive Smiths fan. Even though they didn't particularly like me, um, I liked them. You know, it's funny, they did after it? that. It was I know, I know Johnny was like really like you know, oh, big respect to my brother George there, man. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I met Morrissey once in in the in the eighties. I actually had tea with him in in Paris, and after I met him, he said I was unbearable. <laughs> I I think David Hare should write <laughs> yes. that play, don't you? Morrissey and Boy George having tea and Oh, Paris. it would be that, a that's... great short film. It wasn't a very long tea <laughs> session, but um, I remember afterwards he said, I was, what did he call me? He called me overbearing. Yeah, but, yeah, but imagine how <laughs> awful it would be if he was nice about you. I think that to a certain extent, you know, I mean, you know, I do love, I'm a massive Morrissey fan. I mean, not, I don't support his current views, but as a writer, I, I, I just love the Smiths. I love Morrissey. I've got, all of his records and I think he's he's you know he's he's one of those sort of great urban poets but you know at the time um they weren't allowed to like us were they it was a bit like culture club and spando culture that's club, right spando, was, yeah. we were all sort of a bit like you know we we're a bit like oh you know territorial about what we were doing you know but that's that's the golden rule of every movement isn't it is that you have to hate every other band in that movement but secretly <laughs> but secretly loving certain tunes yeah. you know like secretly loving you know like certain records, but never admitting it. <laughs> I remember when, when, when Geldof uh, bumped into me in the King's Road uh, the day after the Michael Burke uh, documentary, um, uh, news report on, on, on uh, you know, the famine that was going on in Ethiopia. And it was, and he said, would well, you think you and, and, and Culture Club, et cetera, et cetera, do you think you'd all, we, we could make a record together? And I thought there's no fucking way any of us are gonna be <laughs> in the same studio together. We hate each other. You know, but I, you know, I said, well, maybe, you know, stay in touch. And then I remember obviously going to the studio that day with, with Duran Duran, we'd just flown in on, from Germany together and, and everybody being there. And then I remember, you know, early in the morning, Bob picking up the phone to you in a hotel room in New York, telling you to get your ass over to Psalm Studios in London. And then we all, we were all carried on working, carried on working. And then suddenly you walk through the door. It was just an incredible moment. And I remember actually, because I think at the time I'd had a little bit of a spat with Simon Le Bon. I'd said something that upset him. And I was at a fashion show in Paris a few weeks before. And Simon was there and he stood up and said, apologize. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, obviously, I was like, absolutely not. I've got nothing to be sorry for. But um, on that particular day when, when I arrived at Psalm, the first person I saw was Simon and he was very sweet, put his arm around me and you know, it just wasn't, it wasn't a time for, you know, sort of petty squabbles. And, and I think one of those, one of the great things about that scene at Psalm Studios was, you know, nobody was getting special treatment because everybody was like famous and, you know, nobody was getting a private room or cups of tea. It was all just like everyone mucking in and it was quite surreal. I remember sort of one point sort of waiting to go into the men's loo and there was like Marilyn, status quo, yeah. Midjaw, this one, that one. It was just the maddest. Well, status quo were always around the men's loo, I seem to remember. <laughs> <laughs> but listen, is it, I mean, did it really happen like this, that you weren't going to come and then Bob's on the phone to you from London and then you put the phone down, you phone your PA or tour manager and say, get me on Concord. Well, what it was, I was supposed to be coming back a couple of days later and I just, you know, I suppose, you know, just, Thought, what's all the fuss about you know i'll be there in a couple of days i'll just do it then and bob had rung me and you know woke me up at three o'clock in the morning and you know i was in a hotel in new york and normally they don't put people through at three in the morning but obviously he was quite persuasive and i didn't know bob i knew who he was but i didn't know him personally so 
had this mad Irishman screaming at me down the phone saying, you need to come back. I said, okay, okay, come back. People filming him at the other and end. And I didn't you know. even know what I was, I don't think anyone really knew what they were walking into. And uh, no. I flew back the next day. I, I was absolutely knackered. I had no sleep, but you know, you could do that at that point. You didn't really care. Oh yeah, yeah. I remember walking into Psalm and sort of being played the song once and then sort of being marched into the studio to sing with cameras in my face and all of that. So it was quite a pressurized moment, but you know, you just- Yeah, but can I say, I remember being there when you went in and you sang and everybody in the control room, just their jaws hit the ground. I mean, you got off this plane, you had no sleep, you'd had a tiff <laughs> and then you walk in and you sing like an angel straight away. I mean, it was, it was great to watch. I was, I'm so- I've always thought, I've always, I've always thought that, uh, imagine what I'd have been like if I'd had some sleep. <laughs> <laughs> that, that guy who had leant over the balcony and said, I could sing better than your singer in a squat. And then, oh, well, making history. Oh, that was a great time. And, um, you know, I, you know, it's sort of at, the, at the, that moment, didn't really understand what it was and what it meant, but I'm so glad that I was part of that, you know. So uh, how's it, so now you've written this album, Who, who's, um, and Tony Visconti, it's a shame Trident's not open, isn't it still, you know, because that, that would be the place to record it. Although he used <laughs> yeah. to have that other studio, didn't he, in Soho, what was that called? Um, uh, Dean Street, he was in Dean Street, I think, wasn't he, or one of those places? I, there were two Tridents, wasn't there? There was a Trident in Soho, and then there was the one in Victoria. Well, no, there was, there's a Trident yeah. in Soho, but is that where he, because didn't, didn't Tony Visconti's studio is where Midge, recorded fade to gray uh with because uh, i popped down to one of those early visage sessions and it was um and and uh it's gone it's gone but the, well, you know the thing the, the thing with with obviously this current thing that i'm doing obviously i've had to do it virtually and it's been all through emails and phone conversations but my ultimate dream would be to you know obviously there's nothing like being in a studio physically with other people and bouncing off you know musicians and you know, telling people they're rubbish and start again and all that stuff, <laughs> and, you know, all those little dramas that you have when you're making a record. Um, I miss that. And I certainly... You're the first you know, person I've heard say the great thing about making records is telling people they're rubbish. <laughs> you know, bands or you know, I mean, you know, Gary will understand this, you know, there's always, especially you're the main songwriter in the band. So, you know, you're going to have a really strong idea about what you want things to sound like. And, you know, and you, you, you sort of have this sort of passionate connection to to what you're doing musically and you know it's difficult to compromise so those little sort of moments in the studio where i mean i think these days i i, I have so much fun in the studios back in the day it was a little bit more you know chaotic but i think these days i just you know it's, it's where i feel the most comfortable and just relaxed and you know it, i just love it was it very collaborative with culture club or was it i mean was it like more i mean who, who... Did everyone bring stuff to the I table? I think that, very much? you know, Roy and I were the sort of main I was gonna say, I collaborators. Was, yeah. And then, you know, but, you know, you can never... The thing about songs, and you, know, you think back, and you think, oh, yeah, I remember that. Like, that was maybe someone playing a drum beat or, or you know, you know, Do You Really Want to Hurt Me 100% came from Mikey's bass line. He was playing this, you know, dub, and I was like, oh, I've got an idea for this. A lot of it is just in the moment, isn't it? You bounce off people, but because I don't play an instrument, you know, I can't sit there and have that conversation with an instrument that say you could or, or Roy can. And, um, you know, it was, it was all sorts of things. I mean, I think, uh, 
it was collaborative. There were times when everybody was in sync and there were times when, you know, you know, one person wouldn't get it and the other, the other three would be like, oh, this is brilliant. And one, you know, I'd be saying, oh, I hate it. You know, it's rubbish. That's just part of the process, I think, isn't it? George, are, doing those some of those uh, 80s uh, TV shows we used to have to do all over Europe and like going to, I mean, Germany in particular. And, I, and I, is there a story, is it in your book? I can't remember, but I remember always turning up at German TV shows and it would be a terrible backdrop with dancers would come on stage. And isn't there a story around you doing, do you really want to hurt me? There was a really funny, well, there were a few incidents, obviously, because, you know, when, when, you, when you first start out in this business, particularly our generation, we were so involved in everything that we did creatively and we were very involved in the way that we looked and the way that we were presented and you go to somewhere like i remember once in belgium there was a tv show and um we were doing during the me and had there were all these like brains in like glass jars and hearts and surgery and all these people on beds <laughs> and nurses and i walk in and i'm like no absolutely not and one thing i didn't like at all which was funny i mean i love dancers i love people that can dance but i never really liked having dance i just thought it was wrong you know to have people dancing when you're playing and sometimes you get to the studio and they did they've worked out these lovely dance routines and i'll be like no no i don't want them on stage i don't dress right you know we were we were so difficult weren't we yeah but i remember the first tv we did in in belgium uh with to cut a long story short and uh we we went we flew over there we did we did this tv in a we mimed to it in a studio and then we went back and the record company then we said can we we, we want to see the film of that you know you do when you first start doing television shows yeah and they got a vhs of it we went into the, the office to watch it and they must have had this other bloke with a clown's makeup on in another room being filmed against the black background. <laughs> and what they did was they tried throughout the entire song to superimpose this bloke's clown's face on Tony Hadley's. <laughs> oh, I would have gone mental. I mean, I would have gone mental. It was too late had gone out. <laughs> there, was, there were so many times when, you know, sometimes you had to just... I remember Jeremy Healy telling me this hilarious story. He went to Germany with Hazy Fantasia and... They were doing John Wayne's Big Leggy and the, the, the TV station decided to have all these rabbits in a sort of little Hansel and Gretel cottage. And the rabbits all started having sex with each other. <laughs> <laughs> well, I did. I remember doing German TV shows with, uh, with Ice House. We had a hit over there called Street Cafe. And you think, well, you've made it pretty easy for them, haven't you? It's called yeah. Street Cafe. <laughs> and the first one we turned up at, they'd made a Turkish bath with a with a swimming pool in the middle full of dancers covered in cling film and Christmas trees. Well, I think, you know, in those moments, you're at the mercy of these kind of, you know, these creatives that, you know, think they understand what you're about and they, you know, sort of do something that's completely inappropriate and you're like, no! And they spent weeks oh, no. on it. They spent weeks on it. That's true. But talking of 80s TV shows and things that are inappropriate, George, I couldn't believe it when you actually said awesome on the A-team. I know I was forced. Well, I was paid a lot of money. I was paid a lot of money to do that show, and uh, well, the whole point of having you on is because you're this great eccentric English star. I know. So why make you say something that only American teenagers? Oh, when say I saw that, when I saw the script yeah. for that show, I was just like, you know, I can't say this, I and mean, it's not something I would say. And I was, you know, I was, um, I was, you know, suitably difficult, as I would say. <laughs> you're talking about doing other things george just before we we let finally let you go into the grandeur of that space you're in uh do you um, <laughs> you, you 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 write a musical about about us lot if you like about the whole scene and about you and and the struggles you went through uh taboo which uh you got a tony nomination for in america didn't you 
I did. And, you know, we've been talking a bit recently with different people about, you know, maybe relooking at Taboo because I think, you know, at the time it was just a bit too, too much for people. I remember when we went to New York and we were on Broadway, I remember sort of me, you know, I was, I did Lee, I played Lee Bowery and I, my first scene was emerging from a public toilet in a tutu. And uh, people just weren't ready for that. You know, they, they weren't ready for it. I remember because so, you had Philip Salon was a character in it. Philip Salon's one of the, one of our great sort of, I mean, how would you describe Philip? Philip is, you know, a great British concentric. <laughs> and I, I remember, you know, Philip's always been at the head of everything. I mean, the first time I saw the Sex Pistols, Philip was dancing on the stage at the screen on the green, you know, and there he was dancing at the Blitz. And then he's got. Planet. Oh, yeah. For me, for me, Philip was a big, massive influence on me when I met him. And I never met anyone like it. I remember the first time I ever met Philip, I had a girlfriend. Can you believe that? And we were in a taxi with him in a black cab. And Philip was just constantly changing his outfit because he got bored. Every five minutes, he would put something well, I... new on and he would drag us to all these different clubs. And every club we went to, he would get all these clothes out of a plastic bag and just read. He was like, well, I can't be seen in the same outfit at two clubs. I know, I know, because and- uh, he's, he's a character in Taboo as well. And, and I went to the premiere in London of Taboo. And because um, whenever he, his character came on stage, he was telling everyone to shush, shush, you know, so they were. <laughs> and then, I remember your character comes on stage and he tried his hardest to distract everyone. At one point he stood up and he went, I've lost me ring. I've lost me ring. And someone shouted out, you lost that years ago, love. <laughs> Listen, Philip, Philip, uh, you know, there's been a few productions of Taboo and Philip's always been there and he is always entertaining. He's always causing trouble you know, uh, doing inappropriate things. He even once tried to like readjust someone's outfit as they were about to go on stage once when we were doing one performance. So he, <laughs> and he was always there in the front row, making sure everybody knew he was there. But I guess that's what we love about Philip is that he is such a, you know, sort of natural born show off, isn't he really? And then you took over from Tom Jones and did The Voice. I mean, that was National Treasure time again, wasn't it? Yeah, I did. I did. I really enjoyed that. I did it in Australia um, after for about four years. And I, you know, my last season was last year. I really enjoyed doing it. You know, it's a funny old thing, isn't it? Because to be honest with you, my favorite thing is, you know, playing concerts and singing. But these days you have to kind of diversify. You can't just rely on on music. And so, you know, it's been quite interesting sort of branching out into to TV land, but you know, I think you have to be careful not to do too much of that. But I, I really enjoy doing the voice because it's because it's a music based show, so it feels it sits quite well with me. You know, you weren't commuting, were you? Were you staying there? <laughs> no, I stayed in Australia. And in fact, I I came back just as the pandemic started. I managed to get back into the UK, and um, and you know, obviously, you know what's happened for the last year. We've all been in isolation, but um, I really enjoyed doing the voice. I mean, it's a uh, it's a great gig, you know, it's a great thing to do. Uh, I enjoyed doing it. And I, I ended up working with, you know, some people that I met on the show. I've made some music with some of those people and I've developed some great friendships, particularly with Vangelis, who was on my team in the UK. He's one of my best friends now. So some great things came out of of, um, of doing um, The Voice. And, you know, I know there was a lot of hoo-ha about me saying I stole Tom Jones's job but you know i'm a massive tom jones fan i i you know grew up loving him and i maybe used to play his records when i was a kid so you know it was all crap really because i was i was totally i was a massive fan of tom you you must be uh, looking forward to playing live again i mean we all are it's been such a a horrible year for musicians 
Absolutely. And we have got this gig uh, in about a week or so at Wembley. Um, we're not sure right now whether we can have physical people or whether it's just going to be a stream. Right. But Who's on the bill? Just ask Culture Club and, um, uh, you know, we're doing a sort of, we're doing an hour set just for, well, at the, at the beginning of this uh, week, we were doing it to a live audience, but that might change. So What's... every day, as you know, every day yeah. it's, it's a different story. What would you do, so... do it to a video wall, to a sort of wall of thousands of people on Zoom? Well, that would work. We did that with The Voice, but I think that it's an interesting challenge to to play, you know, a, a gig with no audience, uh, you know, it puts, you know, you have to work a bit harder, but I, I'm cool with that. I think it's, uh, I think, you know, we have to start doing something or we'll just go mad. Yeah. And you have to pay to, can you pay to stream it or is it, how does it work? No, you can, you know, if you're, um, yeah, I mean, the streaming thing is quite a new thing, isn't it? Although people don't realize that they're streaming 24 seven anyway, they're on their phones or on YouTube or they're watching the telly. It's the same principle. Yeah, exactly. It's not it's not rocket science, guys. Well, it's the, it's the <laughs> it's idea like... of the interaction though, isn't it? That's, although there's a place down here in Brighton which has started doing gigs where they where people they do, they play to a, a video wall so people can interact with it. And but the good thing is cool. if you're in your living room, you can dance like an idiot and no one's that's gonna true. say anything. <laughs> so it's a perfect, you know, sort of situation. You could you can put your pajamas on, you know, and you know, pour yourself a nice drink and just enjoy it. And I think I think we're all trying to, you know, find ways of, of doing what we do, you know, safely. And, um, you know, I've really missed playing. I mean, I just, you know, I'm sure you do as well. It's like the beginning of the pandemic, I, I didn't really think about it. And then suddenly as the sort of months went by, I went, I'm not working and I'm a workaholic. I, well, I love working. Yeah. yeah, well, we all do, yeah. George, and thank you for coming on and doing this with us as well. God, it's been a real pleasure talking to you. Absolutely, yeah. I've, I've really enjoyed doing it, and uh, it's nice to talk to you. And I must send you that that version of gold, because it's, it's a slash. <laughs> I'd, love to, I'd love to hear that. Lots of love to you, sir. Good luck. All right, Cheers, thank you, George. Guys. Thank you. Bye. Bye, bye, bye. He was great, wasn't he? He was fantastic. He was really, really good. It was really, and it's um, it's nice that kinship of the time. It's funny because obviously you two are part, of, closer part of the thing than I was. I was skirting around it, but um, it was that's really nice to hear that. And it's it's fantastic the journey he's been on and where he is now, isn't it? Oh yeah, I mean I I think he, he's uh, he's he's so full of health yeah, when you when you listen to him, you know he's. I know. I mean, but he's he's got he's got that desire to live, you know, and that's what I was trying to sort of talk about really earlier on when I was saying, you know, what was it that that you know you could go so low and yet you always bounce back, and he's he's got such a desire yeah. to to create. Uh, I don't think I'm scared of him anymore, you know. <laughs> After that, I don't, no, easy, easy. <laughs> Anyway, so thank you for listening today. Um, you can go to all the channels that have us on and you can subscribe and leave a review. Then it's uh, good night from me. And it's, it's good night from him. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. 
Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a four-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.